Once you've marked hymn number 313, which we'll stand in just a little bit and sing that together as a song of encouragement or invitation. But certainly between now and that time, might we again state the exciting joy that's ours to welcome not only our membership on a day when the weather isn't as lovely as it may otherwise be from time to time, but also visitors that have come our way and we're happy for your presence. And we hope that you'll feel welcome and that it indeed will have been good for you to have been here with us. In our study of the Holy Spirit, which today will mark the sixth Sunday that we've devoted to that series of lessons and studies, and we have touched on a number of ideas concerning the Holy Spirit, matters related to such interesting questions as those that we have asked recently and that I've tried to summarize in this opening set of thoughts. Questions relating to what's the nature of the Holy Spirit, a divine person, Furthermore, the importance of appreciating the character and the existence of the Holy Spirit. What about the work of the Holy Spirit in both creation and in revelation, making known to the human family the very plan and will of heaven? We came to see, furthermore, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially those miraculous capabilities of the first century, and then following that series of ideas, some two weeks ago, we asked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and learned from various passages the nature of how that's unfolded in the Word of God. And finally, most recently, that lesson of the last, of the last Sunday, the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the church, especially the avenue of prayer. But with all of that stated, might we say that we aren't far from drawing to a close this series of lessons I suspect that perhaps today and maybe next Sunday, I think, we'll close the series. But maybe this morning, might we look interestingly at one other aspect of the Holy Spirit, you likely noted in the reading just a moment ago, that has caused no little amount of concern and no little amount of problem for many people through the, through the, through the centuries. Namely, what about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I would ask that this morning we not only consider that, but perhaps briefly near the close of the lesson to look at yet another sin. And so today we're going to consider two sins against the Holy Spirit. We will see if we can gain a better appreciation of them and ask some rather vital questions about those sins. With that said, might I invite your attention to consider in a somewhat interesting detail the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This particular sin is mentioned three times explicitly in the New Testament. One of them in the reading that we considered earlier, Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 2. It's also found, discussed in Mark 3, beginning in verse 22. And finally, in the book of Luke, as we turn to the 12th chapter, very briefly in verse 10. As we consider the presentations of them, that matter concerning this particular sin that captures our attention and furthermore seems to keep that attention is the Lord's express statement that this sin cannot be forgiven. As we are aware of the penalty for sin and the eternal ruin and doom that accords with it, it is certainly a serious matter to contemplate a sin which cannot be forgiven. And so might we ask this morning, what is this sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And a number of questions can well quickly come to mind. First, exactly what is this sin? Is it possible for me to be capable of it? Is it possible for it to be committed by anyone today? 
That, those kinds of questions perhaps have led to a number of assertions through the years about what this sin is. Throughout the, the years, as I have read various articles, there have been a number of assertions as to what constitutes this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Some have very pointedly said it's the act of murder. If you take another person's life, this various article that I read, it said you have committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Others, on the other hand, have said it's suicide. If you take your own life, you have committed this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which the Savior referenced. Other writers have asserted it's the sin of adultery. If you commit adultery against your husband or wife, as the case may be, by, under, by committing that act with someone else, you have committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Others have asserted it's apostasy that an individual once faithful to the cause of the Savior, but turns aside therefrom, is thus guilty of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I would again ask us to notice those are that which has been stated by various writers and various individuals who are rather learned and rather notable scholars in some cases. However, I would quickly say, I think the Bible points out rather quickly that none of them can be the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let's see why. Again, the Lord said that this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven either in this world or in the world to come. The Lord's very statement of Matthew 12, 32. Might we ask about murder? Do we have any record of anyone in the Bible who committed murder and was forgiven of it? For if so, that would clearly point out that that sin is forgivable. As we notice those on Pentecost, for example, in verse 36 of Acts, the second chapter, Peter, with boldness and directness, straightforwardly said in that very text that they had been guilty of putting to death the Son of God. As Peter made that statement to them, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The very blood of the Savior was on their hands. In the very next verse, though, they asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter then responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Remission of sins? That sin was forgivable for them. And in verse 47, Roughly 3,000 of them thankfully obeyed the word of the Lord and were saved. It would clearly seem that murder for them was forgiven. Could not thus have been the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Maybe we could even list the Apostle Paul as an example. In Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9, we have him, in fact, playing a role in putting to death Christians. And in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, he even pointedly said, I gave my word to put them to death. Paul thus, in essence, had the life of various Christians on his hands. But it was that same one who later in 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 to 15, who said that God had been merciful to him, though he had been the chief of sinners. Paul, you see, had been forgiven of that sin. Thus, murder is not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, certainly murder is a sin, taking the life of another, but it is not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, what about suicide? As we have often made recognition of the fact, the context must be that which helps us appreciate the unfolding of God's will. 
It is very significant, isn't it, that neither in Matthew, Mark, or in Luke, any of the passages in which this is listed, is there the slightest reference to suicide? Not once. That would strongly seem to suggest, then, that this too is not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But what about adultery? Again, I would submit, if there's even the slightest record that a person who had been an adulterer was forgiven of that sin, that would clearly mean that too could not possibly be the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When we remember the Corinthians, then in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 10, and 11, as Paul addressed that group of individuals in that church, he used the past tense word and said a number of things about what they once had been not the least of which were homosexuals, adulterers. But in the very next verse he said, but you are cleansed, but you are washed, but you are sanctified. Indicating yet again that they had been forgiven of those sins. It stands to reason again, doesn't it, that adultery, though it's a heinous sin, though it certainly is a great troubling matter to the sanctity and power of marriage, though it's in fact a breach of the marriage covenant, it is not the sin that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What about apostasy? Again, there are those who have asserted that apostasy may well be that blasphemy. Maybe we can employ the same logic again. If there's any indication that it's possible for a person who has apostatized to be forgiven of that, it would certainly indicate that that is not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When we read such passages then as Acts the 8th chapter, here we read about a man named Simon who greatly desired the capability of imparting the Holy Spirit by the laying on of his hands. And he even besought that and offered to buy it. Peter, with great boldness, told him of the sin that he had committed. In Acts 8 verse 22, what was his reply? Peter, as he stated to him, he said, Pray God that thy sin may be forgiven thee. Whatever Simon had committed, it was forgivable. It was something for which he could be cleansed and no longer be subject to the guilt thereof. Later on, can we not see in James 5 verses 19 and 20, that remarkable assertion on the part of James, when he urged, If any one do err from the faith, do err from the truth, at that point, did James say all hope is lost? Did he say it's impossible to ever be forgiven of that departure from the truth? Absolutely not. He said, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. It's forgivable, friend, isn't it? Apostasy thus too cannot be the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. As one looks then at the assertions made by various and sundry writers, may we be very cautious and appreciate that only God can define for us what that is. With so far our elimination of these four, adultery, suicide, murder, and apostasy, I suppose the question that does rest on our mind, what then is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Might we understand that? and proceed to answer the questions. Is it possible to commit that today? And furthermore, might you or I, if it's possible, be guilty of it? Let us then proceed to look at the text somewhat more thoroughly, because as we've often noted in our study, the context is exceedingly important. 
let us see what the context reveals about this sin, and maybe those will be the things we need to understand to define for us what is this matter of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Beginning in Matthew 12, verse number 22, we find the opening scene that led to this description. A demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus. This demon-possessed man, as a result of the demon possession, was both blind and mute. That is to say, he could not see, nor could he speak. Jesus healed that man with quickness and with immediacy. And as a result, that same verse tells us that man that had been blind was now able to see, and that man that had been mute was able to speak. Needless to say, in verse number 23, the people who witnessed this and who were aware of that man's former state and what he now was capable of, the text simply says, all the people were amazed. It's clear that a great miracle had been performed in their very observation. And as a result of that, they proceeded to say, Is not this the son of David? These individuals who had witnessed this, who were aware of the great power necessary in it, were beginning to accord to Jesus the fact he's the son of David, and thus the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. He was the one that was to bring forth the very power of God to the nation and in the promised way that the Old Testament had set forth. With the individuals giving the honor and the praise and the glory to Jesus in that way, we have often come to see the religious leaders enjoyed that degree of favor for themselves. It's not surprising then in verse number 24 that the Pharisees had a very different take and a very different statement to make to the people about the performance of this miracle. In fact, verse 24 says, But when the Pharisees heard it, heard that the great miracle had been done, heard what the people were saying about honoring Jesus with the fact that he was performing this, these Pharisees said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Thus, these Pharisees asserted that Jesus had not done this miracle by the power of God, had not done this miracle by relying upon the capability of the great divine nature of heaven, but rather that this fellow hath done this miracle. They didn't deny the miracle, but they said he had done it by the prince of of the power of the devils himself, Beelzebub. It's a fascinating thing to notice. The miracle could not be denied by them. The evidence was too plain. Here was a man who was both mute and blind, possessed with a demon. This man is now not only able to see, he's able to speak. Not being able to deny it, they attributed it, though, the power of its accomplishment, not to Jesus, not to God, but rather to the, to the devil himself. Upon hearing that assertion, in the verses that follow, Jesus crushed, absolutely crushed their presentation. Logically, he demolished the statement that they made. It simply could not be the way that they asserted. In fact, notice the logic he presented. He starts by saying, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city, every house divided against itself shall not stand. That you and I know well. Whether it be a physical structure or whether it be an organization, if there is infighting amongst an organization in which there is animosity fighting against itself, 
that organization shall not long stand. It's often been noted that even Abraham Lincoln made reference to that statement in the very time when the Civil War was about to rage in our country. You see, even Lincoln knew that a kingdom, a house divided against itself shall not stand. The Lord's point could not be missed. If these devil, these, these demons in possession of this man were there by the power of Satan, then if I cast them out by the same power of Satan, I am against myself. Satan is against himself. And that makes no sense whatsoever. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Obviously, they had no answer to that. But that wasn't the only argument that the Lord presented to them. Notice the interesting statement in verse number 28. He said, if I cast out devils by the power, I'm sorry, verse 27, if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Those Jews, you see, those Pharisees claimed the capability by the various natures of prophecy to cast out demons. Jesus asked them, if you say that I cast them out by the power of the devil, then how do you do it? Again, they had no answer. Isn't it amazing that as the Lord presented these arguments to them, notice that their silence is to be noted in great nature. In verse 28, Jesus said, But if, on the other hand, I cast out these demons by the power of God, then let it be stated powerfully, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Having crushed their argument that Beelzebub, by namely by the power of Satan, they'd cast them out, he said, Let it be known if, I have not done it by the power of Satan. There's only one other power that would even be reasonably capable of this, and that's the power of God. If I haven't done it by Satan, I had to have done it by the power of God. And thus you can rest assured that if that be true, the power of God and his kingdom has come unto you. It's in that very context the Lord made one final statement in verse number 30. He said, He that is not with me is against me. He that, scatter, he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Jesus had identified himself as the strong man. He said, I have entered in the strong man's house and spoiled his goods. Clearly, the strong man in the Lord's reference was the devil. And Jesus said, one stronger than he is now here. When we studied the Revelation in some length, we noted on more than one occasion in Revelation 20 the binding of Satan, how powerful and useful that concept is and how noteworthy it is in the New Testament. The Lord said that stronger than the strong man is here. That reference then to the binding of Satan helps us appreciate the power available in Christ both in that day and, of course, in ours. Might it be noted as we consider then this introduction... It is in this context now, following this demolition of their logic, that Jesus makes the reference to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. With that as background, I would invite us to again read verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 12. Wherefore I say unto you, the word wherefore is a linking word. It ties what is about to be said to what has just taken place. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, 
it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. With that idea as the background and an illustration of the thing before us, might we notice the wording that the Savior used? Again, in verse 31, he said, blasphemy. We had not seen that word employed in verses 22 through 30. No mention of the word blasphemy. But now the Lord chooses to use that word. What does it mean and how does it fit the context? The word blasphemy comes from a Greek word, blasphemia, and it means to speak injuriously or to speak against. Probably something like what we would have guessed based on our knowledge of that word. When one blasphemes another, at least in general, he insults by speaking against, he in fact tarnishes the reputation of, he verbally speaks against someone or something. It is to be noted interestingly in this very context that the Lord made some statements about that that are very illuminating. For example, he says that all sin and blasphemy with regard to the Son shall be forgiven. That is to say, now that's in Mark's version, in Mark chapter 3. He expressly made that statement. But notice, that also points out that this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the very next verse, again in Mark's version, he says is not forgivable. And I've used what is the American Standard rendering to perhaps highlight the meaning of the phrase. To say it's not forgivable, notice, is to say it is guilty of eternal sin. Eternal sin. Sin that's perpetual in it, if you please. Sin that does not know any ceasing point. Thus, sin that is not something that can be removed or forgiven. We can easily see the seriousness of this sin. The seriousness of this blasphemy. It is an eternal sin. Not capable of being forgiven. With those ideas in mind, the question now leads us to ask, what is it? Mark's version, I think again, points out a verse that we might be so tempted to read quickly by. I would ask you to turn to Mark 3 and let's read a very brief verse. Beginning in verse 28, in Mark's version, we read the following. Mark 3, verse 28. Wherefore I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wheresoever, soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. The blasphemy against the Son of Man, the Lord said, could be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he said, could not be either now or in the world to come. But now notice verse 30. Again, the sentence doesn't end with verse 29. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. What is the reference? The word he refers to Jesus. The unclean spirit refers to the nature of the Beelzebub that they claim the Lord was using to cast the demons out of this demon-possessed man. In essence, notice because. That's a word that identifies the reason for why the Lord was making this statement. And it explains for us the nature of this blasphemy. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit the Lord addressed because... They said he had an unclean spirit. Perhaps that leads us to draw these conclusions. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. These Pharisees had seen firsthand 
the power of God manifested in the casting out of these demons from this demon-possessed man. They firsthand had witnessed these miraculous capability of Jesus as the very ambassador and emissary of heaven, and yet they attributed it to the devil. I might submit to you that's the very thing that is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was acting through the Savior and cast out those demons. The Holy Spirit, by the manifestation of the will of heaven, was displaying the greatness of God so that men could appreciate Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the human family. And these egotistical Jews, these Pharisees, attributed that, that great majestic power of heaven, to the devil himself. That degree of blasphemy, Jesus said, is not forgivable. When one is willing to look at a miracle performed by Jesus, the very Son of God, and attribute it to the devil, he has gone as far as to commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and thus is in a position to be in an unforgivable state. That blasphemy against the Holy Spirit thus leads us to directly address now some matters. Can that be done today? We might notice we don't live in the area of miracles any longer. In the sense that you and I can't physically see Jesus cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, or any of the other miraculous matters that the Lord was able to accomplish and that which He did. Since we don't live in that direct age of miracles now, then we couldn't be guilty per se of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the sense that we can take and attribute a miracle to the devil rather than to God. But before we go too far, though, we ought to make one statement. And that's what I've used to close that very screen there before you. Noticing again this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the attribution of the divine power of God to the devil. We've stated in a miraculous way those things are not thus possible today. It does, however, quickly point us to John's reference in 1 John 5. In 1 John chapter 5, verse number 16, we read a reference to, and I quote, a sin unto death. A sin that is unto death. Now, might we quickly notice and try to identify what that is and what relation it might have to this blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. First of all, let us say something that we should ever keep in mind relative to the day and time in which we live. According to the New Testament, any sin that is committed today by you or me can be forgiven. Let's notice some of the statements that lead us to that conclusion. In Mark 16, verse 16, the Lord said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The Lord did not qualify that by saying, in verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized, if he's not committed the sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, shall be saved. The Lord did not qualify it that way. He said, If he believes and is baptized, he shall be saved. In John 1 verse 29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John didn't say, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away every sin except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Might we notice furthermore in Romans 6 verses 16 to 18, we have that haunting set of questions. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, 
His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. What sins had they become free from? All of them of which they were guilty. In 1 Peter 1 verse 22, we notice the reference there that they had purified their souls through obedience to the, to the truth, through unfeigned love of the brethren. They purified their souls. I say all of that to help us together see that 1 John 1 verse 2 summarizes it in these, 1 John 2 verse 2 summarizes it in, this, in these words. He, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Notice again, John didn't qualify that. All who will submit to the gospel can have their sins forgiven. All who humbly and obediently submit to the teachings of the gospel will have their sins forgiven. What then is that sin unto death of which John spoke? That sin in 1 John 5, 16 that he said, don't pray for that. Don't pray that a person will be forgiven for that sin. Logically, the only thing it can be if Christ's blood can cleanse any sin to which the person will submit to the gospel terms for forgiveness, then that sin unto death must be any sin which a person will not repent of and seek the forgiveness of God from. John says, don't pray for a person to be forgiven of that, for it cannot happen. And if they continue to live that way and die in that state, they're lost. Might we see then that in a practical way, when we think about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, though we can attribute a miraculous work to the devil because we don't watch miracles today, nonetheless, if you and I refuse to submit to the gospel, if any person does, if they will not submit to the terms of forgiveness by virtue of the truth, and they die in that state, they are forever separated from God. Thus, in a practical way, they will then reap the same benefit as if they had been guilty, if you will, of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But let it be noted, the refusal to submit to the gospel by itself per se is not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because they can be forgiven of it if they'll turn to the gospel, if they will submit their lives to this book, if they will submit to the Savior. But if they die rebelling against Him, having never repented and come to the sweet nature of forgiveness through him, then they will be lost. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, an, is a thrilling subject to consider, isn't it? And it leads us to one final sin that we'll briefly consider this morning. In Hebrews the 10th chapter, there is one other sin that I thought it worthy to consider in light of our discussion today. Very briefly... Near the close of Hebrews chapter 10, we read about a group of people in a state of doing despite unto the Holy Ghost. Doing despite unto the Holy Ghost. In fact, in that very verse, beginning in verse number 26, this is what we read. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses 
law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the grace. I'm sorry, unto the Spirit of grace. People who had done despite unto the Spirit of grace. What is that? Might I suggest that again a careful look of the history of the book would be beneficial. The Hebrew letter was written to Hebrews, as the name suggests, who had obeyed the gospel. Hebrews 6, verses 5 through 9. As such, they were saved. They had been forgiven of their sins. They were in fellowship with God and with fellowship with the Savior. However, they were very sorely and strongly tempted to turn back to the law of Moses because they were intensely persecuted by both their fellow Jews or former fellow Jews and the Roman government. Due to that persecution, persecution which they never experienced under their submission to the law of Moses, they were strongly tempted to revert back to that way of life in religion that was far simpler for them. However, the Hebrew letter was written to them to encourage them, do not leave Jesus. Don't you turn back to that law of Moses. Don't give up the fellowship you have with God. And verse number 29 explains all the wording that the Holy Spirit uses to identify. If they turn back to that law of Moses, he says they will be trotting underfoot the Son of God. Furthermore, they will be counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. And finally, they will be doing despite unto the Holy Spirit. The verb that's translated there is the Greek verb inubridzo, and it means to insult. It means to outrage. It means to treat despitefully. These people, the Hebrew writer said, if you do this, if you return to the law of Moses and put your trust in it, and you proceed to follow it despite what you know about the gospel, you will be insulting the Holy Spirit. You'll be outraging the Holy Spirit. You'll be treating Him despitefully. I might ask each of us to carefully consider that's discussing the apostasy from the gospel. I suspect all of us know one or more people who at once were faithful members of the church. Those who knew about the gospel plan of salvation and had submitted to it. And over time were somewhat faithful. But then, due to one pressure or another, made a decision to leave the church and have never come back to it. They've apostatized from the faith. They are in the very same situation described here. When we consider then the enormity of that decision, they are insulting the Holy Spirit. They are outraging Him because He, through the nature of the New Testament revelation, has given the terms of salvation, and they are ignoring them. No wonder the urgency is thus stated. They are trotting underfoot the Son of God. They are ignoring the blood of the covenant. They are insulting the Holy Spirit. Might each of us then realize how needful it is for us to be, remain obedient to the gospel and never apostatize. We certainly wouldn't want to be guilty of insulting the Holy Spirit. The degree of that insulting perhaps is finished by noting that it's possible to be guilty thus of insulting the Holy Spirit today. May you and I not be so. In verse 25, one of the things that's greatly troubling is the forsaking of the assembly. 
Did you ever stop to realize it's an insult to the Holy Spirit when you and I forsake the assembly? When we could be there but willfully choose not to be? That, you see, is in essence an aspect of crime against the Holy Spirit. For that's when His Word is encouraged. The livelihood of the gospel is set forth. We encourage one another in prayer and song and other ways. It is a vital thing for us, if at all possible, to gather and assemble with the saints and to set forth those things taught to us in the New Testament. The realization of closing our lesson today, we've looked at the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and learned that in a direct way we cannot be guilty of that today. But in practice, if we, we can be guilty of that sin unto death, if we are guilty of something, that is a violation of heaven's will, but we refuse to seek repentance and forgiveness for it. We will, if we die in that state, we'll be forever lost. We've also noted thus, this despite, this insult to the Holy Spirit, apostasy. May we not be guilty of that, and may we encourage those that we know that are to think urgently about Hebrews 10.29, that they might come back to their first love and no longer be apostates to the faith. Today, what about your life and mine? May we each examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. If you are not a faithful member of the Lord's body today, don't leave this building in that state. Time is too precious. Eternity is too long. If you've never obeyed the gospel initially, realize the terms set forth in the Bible are these. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His name as the Son of God, and you must be baptized. Those aren't my ideas. Those are the Savior's ideas, His demands. Upon your baptism, scripturally, you'll be admitted into the church, and all the blessings accorded to the family of God will be then extended to you. If, though you walk away from that, you live in a disgraceful, shameful way, not in faithful covenant relationship with the Lord, come back to that first love. Don't remain in that state. After all, you're doing insult to the Holy Spirit if you do. Come back to that first love. Let us pray on your behalf. And if we could do that today, what an honor it would be for us and also an eternal blessing for you. Let us know that if you would while together we stand and while we sing.